Good morning. I'm really excited to be speaking to you this morning, to be launching our new preaching series through the book of Exodus. Uh, and I just want to add my thank you to everyone who gave so sacrificially into the gift day. Just so amazing, the, the great faith that has been at work through so many people. And uh, I mean, what a God, what a God we serve who, who meets our needs. As we come to kick off this preaching series through the book of Exodus, I don't know how much you know the story, you may or may not know it, but it is one of the most famous and important stories in the Bible. It's a great story, but it starts in a real bad, dark place of brutal slavery and oppression of God's people. Now, for some reason, it seems easy for us to be a little bit desensitized to just how dark and shocking the context and the content of this story is, certainly at the beginning. When we think of ancient Egypt and Pharaoh and, and how they treated the Israelites, it just seems hard to maintain an appropriate level of horror and outrage. And that means that we lose some of the power and wonder at what God did to take them out of all of that and into freedom. My, I think, my most memorable, memorable cinema experience was when my wife Liz and I went and watched 12 Years a Slave. It is a, a harrowing and tragic film based on, on the real experience of Solomon Northup. And even though he kind of comes out of slavery, it, it's just, the whole film is so hard to watch. And I remember going to the cinema, you know, in the lovely comfy seats at Cineworld and had a bag of popcorn and just kind of eating the popcorn, quickly reaching a point where you think, no, I cannot sit and eat popcorn while I, while I watch this. And the, the people crying all over the room, it was just an atmosphere like I'd, I'd never known as a result of the, the kind of shocking scenes that we were watching and which have been a reality for so many people in history. The film did a great job in helping to resensitize viewers to some of the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade that ran for about 400 years, right up in, into the 19th century. And when we think of the Holocaust un under the, the Nazi regime, we, we still have a bit of that sense of outrage. And there's this perspective that Hitler, you know, is just the epitome of a bad guy, evil personified. It's hard to have that sense when we come to Exodus. I suspect it's just harder with the story of Exodus because we just feel so far removed due to the, the gap in time. But it just means that we miss so much of the significance and weight of the story. And it's helpful and important for us to at least try to grasp something of the real darkness and hopelessness of the lives of the Israelites as the story begins. At the beginning of this year at Grace Church, we were preaching through Genesis, the first book of the Bible that comes before Exodus, the second book. Um, and we saw how the sin of humanity uh, was, was so prevalent, but the promise and the hope that comes through the God of grace. Just to quickly recap Genesis series, <laughs> very quickly, do catch it up, otherwise. God created, right? It was good for a bit. Then humanity messed it up when we sinned and tried to redefine good and evil for ourselves. 
but God promised redemption through Eve, through the woman. And uh, later on, God called an old man, Abraham, and made specific promises to him to multiply him and his family and to bless the nations through his family. We see through the book, his family, and they're all a bit of a mess, really. Um, but God is gracious and faithful to his promise. And then Joseph and his dreams, and they, they brought great blessing to the nation of Egypt, ultimately. And so the whole family comes to Egypt with him. And there are about 70 people as the story ended. We called it the series Origin Stories. Talked how it was all of our origin um, but made up of lots of little stories through the book, really, and different generations through it. Uh, and we come to Exodus, which is the continuation, but, but not just, not, it's not lots of stories, but Exodus is just one story. Now, we, um, we will cover about 480 years today, but, but after that, the, the story of Exodus is just two years, what's, what's happening. So 400 years on from Genesis, and God's promise is being fulfilled. They are exceedingly fruitful. They've multiplied greatly. But the Pharaoh at the time does not see Israel as a blessing. He, considered this, he considers this growing Israelite immigrant group as a threat to his power. He's really bad news, Pharaoh. He, he, he disregards their humanity. He tries to destroy the nation of Israel by dehumanizing and brutally enslaving them and enacting a policy of, of genocide where, where baby boys are murdered. He is the worst character in the Bible so far and epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. He's so redefined good and evil according to his own understanding that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. Let's just read the beginning of, of Exodus, uh, the first 16 verses. Try to, again, as we read, try and grasp the horrors of it all, the reality of this. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt, Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built, they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Hopefully we can 
grasp some of the evil and darkness and need for salvation and redemption for, for the Israelites. These people who are subject to this, they, they're recipients of the promise. These are God's people. And so this is our history as God's people. In the New Testament, it, 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 these are called our ancestors, even to, to non-ethnic Jews, to Gentiles. These, these are our people. This is our history, just like Genesis was our origins. But also, this is, as we go through the book of Exodus, this is our story. So it's not just our history, because it happened to our ancestors. This actually happened to us, as we'll see. Through this story, what has happened to Israel, mostly physically, has happened also to us, mostly spiritually, but in no less of a real way. And so... It's not just that our story of salvation as Christians, as the people of God under the new covenant, evokes the exodus kind of in hindsight, but actually that the exodus evokes our story of salvation in advance. My title for today and, and kind of theme and strapline for this series is Out of and Into. Exodus means going out. It is a journey, leaving one place and going to another. We'll see through this book how God miraculously and dramatically takes Israel on an exodus from service to Pharaoh to service to God, from slavery to worship. It's a story of liberation out of slavery. It's important to know what Israel and we are saved out of, saved from oppression and slavery, lack of freedom, torture. Verse 14, bitter lives, death and extinction. It's important we, we learn and talk about what we've been saved out of. But we can sometimes overemphasize that and just talk about Exodus as a story out of slavery. The DreamWorks film finishes the story there. They're set free from slavery and, and then that's the end of the story. But that's just the first 18 chapters. There's 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. So it's not just a story of liberation out of slavery. It is a story of liberation into worship. We, in the kind of modern West, we've got a messed up idea of what freedom is. This book helps us to understand it. People today think of freedom as independence and autonomy free to do what we like, free to be yourself. And that is not true freedom. That is not how the Bible talks about freedom. They're horrible pictures of freedom. It's important to know what Israel and we are saved into. And that is freedom. Yes, true freedom. It's, it's worship of God. It is joy in his presence. It is the promise of God. It's a story of liberation out of slavery and into worship. God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. Let, let my son go out of slavery so that he may go into worship. As we look into the rest of the first couple of chapters this morning, we're going to see patterns of what is to later happen in the later and greater Exodus. 
as people are delivered out of and into. I'm going to carry on reading. We'll read um, from verse 15 in chapter 1. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that it's a baby boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. There's a pattern of deliverance here, out of and into, that happens with the Hebrew baby boys, Israelite baby boys who are delivered out of death and into life. They subject to death, but they're delivered into life. The, the named Shifra and Puah are amazing women of faith and courage. Notice that as yet and throughout the book, Pharaoh remains unnamed. These Hebrew midwives are named. Says something of who God exalts and honours and who he brings down and humbles. And it says in verse 17 uh, that the, the Hebrew midwives, however, feared who? I mean, the oppressive, evil, powerful king who was telling them to do something. Did they fear him? No, it says they feared God, not, not, not the evil, oppressive king. Again, this is, a, this is a brutal story, a brutal environment to live in. There's a policy of infanticide with a view to destroying the nation, genocide. So, so the midwives are told, deliver a baby, then see if it's got a penis, find out what sex it is. If it's a boy, kill him. It doesn't say in this case how, just, just kill the baby. I know you're a midwife, it's the opposite of what, but that's what you're supposed to do. There's some interesting stuff about lying here and they make up some stuff about Hebrew women giving birth, um, you know, in a more vigorous way as if the Egyptian women are just faffing about with their childbirth, which I mean, I can't imagine anyone in childbirth is just taking their time. Um, but they make up this story and I won't go into kind of what that says about what God thinks about lying, but, but clearly God blesses them. And, uh, and who knows how many Hebrew baby boys, because of the faith of these women and probably other midwives as well, how many baby boys are not killed and face death, but are delivered out of death and into life. And God blesses the midwives and protects them and gives them families. What happens to the baby boys is prefiguring what happens later. It is a pattern of what is to come for the nation of Israel. And then in verse 22, Pharaoh, Pharaoh refuses to give up. And it says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. It didn't work with the midwife, so he gets the whole nation in on his plan. It's, it's desperate, it's crazy, really. I watched uh, Gogglebox the other day. Yep, I don't know, I mean, it's my, fine. I used to knock it too, but you've got to try it. Um, and there's certainly some dodgy bits, you skip some, skip some of the stuff, but, but love it, it's an amazing program. Emma Willis was on it and she was kind of, she trained to be a midwife, midwife or something. She was, one of the programs they were watching, 
um, there was a helping, she was helping with a cesarean and it went okay. The cesarean seemed to go all right. The baby boy delivered, but no crying he makes, which is not a good thing, by the way. And uh, you're kind of watching and you don't know if the baby's okay. And all of the viewers on Gogglebox, all of the people watching telly who you're watching, every one of them, right? People from very, very different backgrounds, all of them emotionally drawn in and desperate for the baby to breathe and live. All saying, oh, please breathe. They're all desperate. Unfortunately, the baby does breathe and live. The point I'm making is, I don't care what culture or time that you live in, to call on a whole nation to take responsibility for killing baby, baby boys it is not easy. It, every Egyptian is called to be secret police, to take newborn babies out of their families and throw them into the Nile. It, it, it's crazy. Of course, the only way for this ever to happen is to dehumanise the Hebrews, uh, which throughout history is the only way that you can remotely oppress anyone in this way. Let's read on from uh, chapter two. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby crying. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, that's the baby's sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. That's Moses' mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, this baby, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew, grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. The baby Moses is delivered out of a place of guilt and into a place of royalty. The key figures here are Moses' mum, we later find out it's called Jochebed, Moses' sister, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. Jochebed is an amazing woman. We did a preaching series a while ago on characters in the Bible we're inspired by. I did Jochebed. She is amazing. She hides Moses by faith when she should have killed him. Three months is impressive, I think, that she managed to last that long. It's going to develop lungs soon properly, uh, that, that that is not going to work. And so there's this amazing story, which is kind of a combination, I think, of God's amazing providence and Jochebed's wisdom and, and craftiness. She knows what she's doing in this story. She is, she's condemned to have her baby taken from her and killed. The dark story. But she sensed God was at work through this baby, so she built an ark, and she put him in the ark and trusted him to God and appealed to the sympathy of royal women. It's kind of Moses going on his first exodus journey here. 
as he goes along the Nile and, and Pharaoh's daughter sees him. She has compassion on him. She looks for a nurse and Jochebed is paid to raise Moses and, you know, and she gets to teach him his heritage and things before he goes off to live in the palace. And at that point, Pharaoh's daughter adopts and names him formally, names him Moses, which means draws out. Because as a, as a foretaste of what's to come, he is drawn out of death in the Nile and not just kind of left on the side, but into life as a royal prince. His very existence meant guilt, right? He, he was guilty. His living was illegal. Rightly or wrongly, obviously wrongly in this case, according to the albeit corrupt law, but the law nonetheless, he is guilty and should die. He's drawn out of that place and into royalty. So we've got five women here so far whom God has used dramatically to, to work his purposes. We've got to be noticing this. The only man so far to really feature is the serpent and dragon-like Pharaoh. And we've got Shifra and Pua and Jochebed and Miriam, and they all use their quick wit and wisdom to beat the serpent at his own game and preserve the seed of the woman. It's a pattern that occurs many times through scripture. It's amazing. We obviously see it, we see it with, with Hannah and Esther and in the New Testament with Elizabeth and Mary, who God is speaking to, and the women at the tomb at the end. It's a pattern we've got to notice. And in the same section, the same passage, that's Moses' deliverance out of guilt and into royalty. The same story, we see Jochebed's own deliverance out of and into, which is so wonderful. If, if she is caught doing what she's doing, she will be condemned for hiding the baby. But she is delivered out of condemnation and into comfort. I mean, to be honest, that's putting it very mildly. She was delivered into a place where she can safely do what she should have been able to do from the start and raise her own son. But now she doesn't do it with, with kind of condemnation hanging over her. She does it with a royal seal of approval. She does it whilst being paid for it. So she's doing what she should have been doing and is called to do, but there's blessing on top of that and there's security and comfort through it all. And then 40 years later, Moses goes on his second Exodus journey, um, which again prepares him for his, for his greater third one. We'll read uh, from verse 11 in chapter 2. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Some, sh some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so, er so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. 
Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. We see Moses begin to identify with the Hebrews and, and stick up for justice, work as a rescuer. In, in the kind of situation where he kills an Egyptian, it's unclear from the passage if he's in the right or wrong. Often assumed he's in the wrong, I don't know, it's not that clear. What is clear, it seems, is the course of events have very strong hints at the future exodus. If you know how this story is going to go, then you'll, you might pick up on the, the familiarities. He, he, Moses sticks up for the Israelites at, at the hand of, of an abusive Egyptian. And the oppression is relieved in the story, and, and that results in the death of the Egyptian. Then Pharaoh tries to kill him, and so he flees to the east before spending 40 years in the wilderness. There's a lot of hints at what is going to happen later in the story. And then we see the daughters of Rule, who are watering their flocks, and some kind of unruly shepherds come to abuse them. We don't know what that means, whether that's physically or sexually, or it would have been at least to kind of push them away and steal the water that they had drawn. But Moses steps in and rescues them and, and drives them off. As a result, he's welcomed into their home and he ends up marrying Zipporah. So in a sense, both, both Moses and Zipporah in their own way are delivered out of abuse and into intimacy. Moses is fleeing uh, Pharaoh, trying to kill him and ends up coming in being brought into a family and raising his own family. And Zipporah, who is going to be uh, attacked by the shepherds, is delivered and ultimately delivered into intimacy and marriage. We see these patterns uh, occurring of what's going to happen from, in various characters. But meanwhile, while all of this is going on in Egypt, 40 more years pass and Israel as a nation remains seemingly hopeless that they remain oppressed and abused and condemned still subject to slavery enter god at this point and hope dawns as we read exodus 2 23 to 25 during that long period and it would have been long the king of egypt died the israelites groaned out groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is a big moment. God is not ignorant to the oppression and the struggle of his people. He hears, he remembers, he looks on and he is concerned about what is happening. And that means action. That means God is going to intervene. And, and it is confirmed that all of these things we're seeing are foretastes of what is about to happen to the nation of Israel as a whole. We are going to see the whole nation delivered out of death and guilt, condemnation and abuse but not just out of those things, but also into life and royalty and comfort and intimacy, ultimately into worship, into relationship with God and the presence of God. Without God, we today 
are all spiritually in, in the same starting place as Israel. We, we have an enemy against us in the devil. He, he's, he's, he's our Pharaoh who does all he can to use and abuse us. We're sinners. We, we are guilty of rebellion against God and, and are rightly condemned to die for it. The wages of sin is death and we've all fallen short. So we will, we will die and, and really are dead in our sin. Like Israel, without a miraculous deliverance and deliverer, we are hopeless. Enter Jesus and at no small cost. In fact, in order for us to have hope, Jesus must travel in the opposite direction in all of those things. Because God has heard and remembered and seen and cared about the world, about you and your struggles and mine, because of that, he has sent his son to be our rescuer. And Jesus has come out of intimacy with the father and entered into abuse. He's rejected by his own, the victim of verbal and physical abuse, ultimately beaten to a pulp at his crucifixion. Jesus has come out of comfort and equality with God and into condemnation. He lived a perfect life and yet he is condemned to die, not for his own sin, but for yours and mine. Jesus has come out of royalty and into guilt. He was guilty because he bore our sin, because even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us. He became a curse for us, having left equality with God. And therefore, Jesus was delivered out of life and into death. Now, he was sinless, so he didn't need to die. But because he took our sin on himself, because he became sin and became a curse, he took the punishment that we deserved and died in our place. And because of that, and only because of that, because Jesus has become our rescuer and traveled in that direction, like Israel through the book of Exodus, those who have put their faith in Jesus as their rescuer and deliverer have indeed been rescued. And we as Christians under the new covenant, we have been delivered out of abuse. The enemy will still try and sin still comes for us, but it should be water off a duck's back now because we have been delivered out of that into intimacy with the Father. We have been delivered out of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took it. Instead, we are delivered into comfort and security in his presence. We're delivered out of guilt. We are found not guilty because he was found guilty and into royalty. We've become sons and daughters, adopted as sons and daughters of the great king and out of death and into life. He died so we don't have to. Jesus really went out of life and into death and then out of death and into life again, risen again. And we live now because he lives. We have an eternal life. That means life that is full and abundant and joyful and life that goes on and on and on. And we will not die because we are in him who has already died and been raised back to life for our sin. This Exodus story is a story of redemption. Redeem, that word means 
buying back, especially in terms of slavery. It's purchased. God has purchased his people. He has paid for them so that now they may belong once more to him. Delivered out of service to and ownership of Pharaoh and into service to God and ownership of God. And it all points forward to how Christ has redeemed us out of slavery to sin and into lives of worship. And we now belong to him. We're not set free to do what we want. We are set free to worship God, which is true freedom. I just want to finish by reading the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, and, then I'll, and then I'll pray. The question that, that starts the Catechism, which is questions and answers that explain the Christian faith, really, is a great question for all of us. A question for you, what is your only comfort in life? If, uh, if you're a believer, then um, we'll read through I'll read through what is, a, what is an amazing answer to this question, but it's a great question. If you're not a believer, how do you answer? What is, what is your only comfort in life? What is your comfort in life? For the believer, what is your only comfort in life? It is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of Pharaoh, of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Oh, King Jesus, I thank you so much for all that you have done for us, that you have left comfort and security and intimacy with the Father and come into and borne our shame and our sin, taken our condemnation and our guilt. You have paid for us with your blood and now we are not slaves to sin but we are slaves to righteousness you have purchased us and now we can say what is my only comfort in life is that I am not my own it's that I'm not free to do whatever I like but I belong to Jesus in body and soul in life and in death we thank you for your great rescue, King Jesus. We worship you. We give you all the honour. We acknowledge that were it not for you, we would still be hopeless. But because of you, we have great hope and joy and great comfort in life and in death. All glory be to you, King Jesus. Amen.